tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. I looked something up and now I've lost it. Well, man. Good oh, There's all this, all these buttons to press. And I just, oh, well, let's pray. That will help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nation, taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's open the big book on the coffee table. At least that doesn't involve too many buttons. Okay, okay. Um, uh, the famous last words, the... Uh, of course, I got to press the buttons to pull it up, but that's all right. The reading, I, I thought I'd done that. Well, well, we're we're good. We're good. The reading, the first reading today is from Isaiah the fifty-fifth chapter. It's a beautiful reading, and but it it makes it sound kind of well, it makes God sound kind of, um, oh, predestinationist. Is that a word? Um, my as as the heavens. From the heavens the rain and snow come down and do not return there until they have watered the earth. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but shall do my will, achieving the end for which I sent it. See, well, if God's going to do his will, why do we bother to pray? This is a good question. God's just going The point is God is not going to do his will, not the way we think of it. When we think of our will as God's, the same as God's will, quite different. We're assuming that we know God's will. And I suspect that God's will is to give us perfect freedom that we might love. Um, I'll talk more about this in the art. Well, why not talk about it now? Um, we're going to see in the Our Father, which I call the most dangerous prayer you can pray, and I'll get to that part later. But um, now don't anybody say I said stop saying the Our Father. Keep saying the Our Father. God will bring you around. Don't worry about it. And remember, we're taking what I say with a big grain of salt. The uh, um, Can't you get a louder salt shaker? I mean, I'm going to need it today. Moving along, this idea that, that God there, that's much lot. See, a lot of salt. Take your blood pressure meds because this is going to take some salt. Uh, the the um, This idea of, of God doing his will. It isn't as if I would be God and do my will. 
God does his perfect will. And God's perfect will is that we love him. And in order to achieve his perfect will, and that he allows him to us to be loved by him, but in order to achieve God's perfect will, he has to give us freedom. This passage is the opposite of deterministic. What is the will of God? That we, we have real freedom that we might love. You, uh, you understand. I, I share this, this analogy. I suppose that's the right word. I can never remember if that's the analogy. I think it's the right word, but okay. The, the, uh, the Hollywood starlet who clearly has some work done marries the 90 year old billionaire and he, they do the puff piece about how she, and she says to the reporters, Oh, I'd love him if he was still the poorest man in the world. And, they, the reporters know that's not true. You know it's not true. She knows it's not true. The only, the only one who thinks it's true is that doddering fool who's sitting over at her side dribbling. <laughs> and when he finally kicks off a few months later, she's in a royal fight with the, the lawyers for the first, second, third, and fourth wives because he's left everything to her and her two chihuahuas. And uh, she didn't love him. She couldn't love him. She was so poor. He was so rich. And we treat God like that. God, give me everything I want, and if you do, then I'll love you. How about I give you nothing? Will you love me then? Well, <laughs> not so sure about then. You see, we don't love God. We love what he can do for us. That's, that's, I think we need to think about that. You know, and when you think as we, as we enter into Lent that, that God the Father said no to Jesus once. Think about that. Jesus said, you always hear me, and he did always hear Jesus, but he didn't always do what Jesus asked. What do you mean? The Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. We read in the letter of the Hebrews that Jesus cried out to the Father with loud cries and lamentations. It wasn't, oh, Father, this cup may pass from me. It was, I don't want to do this. And the Father said, no, I want you to do it. And Jesus said, well, all right. If there were nothing in it for you, would you still love God and worship him? Well, nothing, not even light, heaven when you die, not even heaven when you die. Would you still worship him? Well, maybe I'd look for an easier religion, frankly. You follow where I'm going with this? So the what is the will of God? It isn't that everything be hunky-dory in my life and that, that everything ends happily like a half-hour sitcom. No, it, it's that I would be able to love and to be loved loving my neighbor and loving God because God is sacrificial love. God is agape. Well, God's will then. He's, he, if his will is to, is to drag us to heaven or send us to hell, well, that's one thing. But his will, I suspect, is to give us perfect freedom. And uh, his will is justice. And again, a thing I've said many times, and I may be wrong about it, but I really think that in God, mercy and justice are the same exact thing. God gives us what we're praying for, not what we think we're praying for. Oh, God, I want a million dollars, and I want this, and I want that. Uh, gimme, gimme, amen, amen. No, no, you're not asking for treasure. You're not asking for convenience. You're asking to be the God of your own life. And the Lord says, you want to live a life totally wrapped up with yourself? Okay, that's what you want. 
and that's called hell. If we want to go to hell, God will let us do so. Hell is the complete alienation from God's presence. All right, that cheerful thought. Let's go on to the gospel. Okay. You know, that Jesus says, uh, in praying, do not babble like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him, not what you want, what you need. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So why bother to ask him if he knows already? Why bother to ask him? It's a very good question. For I've heard it said that for the pagan, prayer is to get God, the gods, the powers that be, to do their will. But piously, I've heard prayer for Christians is that we would, God would, God would uh, uh, give us the strength that we would do his will. I don't believe that either. I think that when we pray, what we do is we give God permission to do his will. Again, I'm repeating myself. But the prayer of the pagan is, oh, Lord, give me what I want. Now, you can pray that way. And if it's good for your life or your salvation, uh, God is generous. The Father loves you. But usually when I ask for something, it's for something that isn't good for me. I think it'll be good for me, but it isn't good for me. So why do we pray? We pray to give God the permission to do his will. As we, we see further on in the Our Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I, I don't mean that. I'm lying through my teeth. I want my kingdom to come and my will to be done. The Christian prays to give permission to God to do his perfect will in my life. You start the prayer of, Lord, I would like this, this, and this, but if you've got a better plan, dear God, I'm not. Whatever you want from me, Lord. Lord, teach me your ways. The prayer of the pagan, as I said, is, Lord, is give me what I want. The prayer of the Christian is, Lord, teach me your ways. All right, let's, let's look at the specific prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. Well, first of all, we're asking God to be Father. All these people say, I can't identify with a male deity. I can't either. I don't identify with a deity. I'm not God, and I'm not going to be. <laughs> This idea of me identifying with God, well, that's, that's like I said, <laughs> Cardinal George once said that the person who makes his own religion up soon finds he's worshiping himself. Well, why do we call God Father? Because Jesus called God Father. Well, why did Jesus call God Father? Not because he was a, a blighted uh, Palestinian person living in a third world country and couldn't conceive of, of God as mother. Jesus lived a few miles from temples where there were priestesses and mother goddesses. Galilee was Galilee of the nations. It was Greek, as much Greek as it was Jewish. And, and there were the Decapolis were ten Greek cities where there were all these magnificent temples to the gods and goddesses. And there were priestesses all over the place. God called, Jesus called God Father because he experienced him as Father. In the ancient world, the Romans had this custom, and everyone else had a custom similar to it. They would come, they would, if a child was born, they would bring this child and put it on the floor in front of its father. And that father would look at the child, and if he picked the child up, that was his child. He was acknowledging paternity. 
even if everybody knew this wasn't his child, he was legally the child's father. On the other hand, if everybody knew that this child was genetically the child of the man in question, if he looked at the child and walked away, they threw the child in the garbage. They threw the child out. How horrible. Well, we're doing the same thing with so-called post-birth abortions or or late-term abortions. A child who can live outside the womb, we kill them anyway. If a child's born viable after an abortion, well, we kill it. We're no better than they are. We're as bloodthirsty as they are. Um, I just got a note that the state of Alabama said that the child in the womb is a person that has rights. Bravo. Okay, moving along here. Um, the ancients understood that fatherhood is always adoptive. You always choose to be a father. Fatherhood is not simply engendering a child. You always know who your mother is. <laughs> she was there when you were born. Motherhood is necessary. Uh, you know, you're in that in the womb nine months, and then you're hanging at the breast for another year or two if you do it the traditional way. And um, uh, you know who your mother is. The question is, who is your father? Fatherhood is always a choice. And just because a man may engender a child does not mean he is that child's father in the fullest sense. You have to choose to be a father. Fatherhood is always adoptive. God always chooses us. Thus, Jesus called God Father. Another element of father is father traditionally is the one who, who disciplines you. And mother is traditionally, of course, this, this is stretching it, but mother is traditionally the one who makes you chicken soup and says, there, there, honey, it'll be all right. Well, do we want God to be our father or not? I think that this is an important thing. Another issue, who art in heaven. My father would put his hat and his coat on, kiss mother goodbye, and walk down to the train to go into the loop to, to his office to bring home the bacon. He was far away. Sometimes God seems very far away. I don't want a father in heaven. I want I want a father who who's right there doing what I want when I want it. And sometimes the father seems distant from us. Our father who art in heaven, I'm trusting him even though he is not immediately available at all times, at least in my perception. Hallowed be thy name. What did a Jew mean when... He's, he talked about sanctifying the name. That's what hallow, to hallow means to sanctify. Sanctified be thy name. How can I make God's name any holier than it is? When a Jew talked about sanctifying the name, and that's the way they talked about God. They didn't mention YHWH, like I said yesterday. Uh, they didn't, they didn't uh, speak the name of God. Uh, they didn't even call him Lord unless they were praying. They called him Hashem, the name. So, hallowed be your name. When a Jew talks about sanctifying the name, he's talking about dying because he's a Jew. To be a Jew in the world uh, and to be rejected uh, simply because of your ethnicity and to be, you know, the, the Jews have suffered millennia of persecution simply for being Jewish. Um, that's to sanctify the name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And, you know, I'm always telling you, kingdom basilia means the royal nature of God, you know, that we're praying that God manifest who he is, not who we want him to be. 
Thy will be done. I mentioned that earlier. You know, that, uh, oh Lord, I'm saying thy will be done, but I'm lying through my teeth. I want you to do my will. Amen. On earth as it is in heaven. You know, that, that, that we're, we're praying that we are as responsive to God as the angels. You know, that's what I think of in this verse. Um, I, this is the weakest of the verses in my understanding for me. But I think of the angels that, that they don't even care to be named. I mean, people name their angels. That's fine. But, but I always think that when I get to heaven and meet my guardian angel, God willing, I make it. Um, <clears throat> I'll be nice to meet you. <laughs> it's nice to meet you, but my name isn't Fred. You know, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, that the, the angels are transparent. They're only seen or mention their own names, which usually are job descriptions, uh, um, hesitatingly. Give us this day our daily bread. Great argument about the meaning of daily, but, but uh, I, I really do believe this means give me what is necessary for today. You know, I think of the verse, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. I don't want a lamp onto my feet. I want a nice, a nice coal miner's helmet that shows me way down the tunnel. You know, this is one day at a time. And this is the worst one. Forgive us our trespasses. And the word in Greek and the word in Latin is debtor. And, uh, the word, the word trespass in older, uh, English might have meant debt. I think that's what I read. But the word is debtor. Forgive us what we owe you. Remember the, the parable of the unjust steward who owed his master a fortune and his fellow servant owed him a few bucks and he, he threw him in prison. Um, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who owe us. And this is a tough one. Lead us not into the test. Remember I shared with you the temptation and testing, same word, but deliver us. And this is again, going to be a little, a little controversial. Deliver us from the devil. It says from evil. That's because we are riffing off the Latin translation of the Greek text. In Greek, it's apotuponeru, which means from the evil one. Uh, uh, In Latin, they do not have the definite article. They don't have any articles. They would talk like cave persons, you know, give give food, food good. They wouldn't say the food is good. They say food good. There was no the in, in Latin. So deliver us from evil in Latin. There's no the, but there's a the in Greek. And when you combine the with an adjective, it's a substantive adjective. In other words, it's the evil one. So deliver us from the evil one. We're reminded in the Our Father that we are in constant spiritual warfare. And I've shared with you the idea that God does nothing outside of a covenant. A covenant is I give you that you might give me or a contract, rather, is I give you that you might give me. A covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. Within each covenant, there is a contractual element. That There there are conditions of the covenant. And there is a contract, but it's an unbreakable contract. It's broken only by the death of one of the contractors, one of the contracting parties. This is the the contract of the covenant, we're saying we'll let God be our father. We will be willing to be martyred. We want his royal nature, not the world's royal nature. We want his will to be done, not my will to be done. We want to be as responsive to him as the angels. Uh, we want to, we're, we're content just to get what we get for this day and nothing more. 
and we promise to forgive those uh, who are in our debt the way that that um, that uh, we ask you to forgive us the way we forgive others. And uh, you know, may we go willingly into the test. May may we not need to be tested. May we be so committed to you and help us in our struggle against evil. This is what we're. This is the contract that we're we're, we're saying. We will do these things, and you will be father to us. We lie through our teeth because we don't want any of this, especially we don't want just our daily bread, and we don't want God's will to be done. We want our, my, our own will to be done, and we are not really going to forgive people. We'll make a, a show of it, but we'll hold grudges, and then we go up and we make perfect liars of ourselves, and then we go up and receive Holy Communion. Remember what communion is. It is saying that as he lays his body, blood, soul, and divinity on this altar for my sake and the salvation of the world, I will lay my body, blood, soul, and humanity on this altar with him for the same goals. I will give him myself, and he will give me himself, and these are the contractual elements of the covenant. You see, we make liars of ourselves. Don't stop saying the Our Father, just learn to live up to it. We're going to take a break. The phones will open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. And we will be back, provided I don't push any of the wrong buttons. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester, an Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. Father Simon says, This is an hour of obscure facts masquerading as scholarship. On Relevant Radio. I'm back in the saddle again. Out where a friend is a I'm not that far. Well, the people are friendly here. I really nice. I don't think any longhorn, but there's a lot of cows where I currently live. <laughs> okay, moving along. Enough about the cows. Let us go to the word. Not the no. The letters. That's what we're going to. Uh, somebody asked if um, you know regarding Father Father Rocky's. Uh, this was George. He, he asked him about Father Rocky's Lenten lessons about the altar stone. I got a couple questions about the altar stone. And the altar stone probably originates from the celebration of Mass on the tombs of the altar, or the tombs of the martyrs. That's what I was always told. And so it became a custom to place relics, especially of martyrs, in altars. And it seems that the wooden altar was common in the early church because they didn't have the wherewithal for other, but it, it was replaced by stone altars, and there is an altar stone that that you put in the that would fit in the wooden table or a, a wooden altar or in a stone one, and it has relics of a saint. Now, it is interesting that this is an honored custom; uh, it should be retained, etc., etc. Uh, 
The practice, this is uh, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, number 302, the practice of placing relics in the saints, even those not martyrs, under the altar to be, de- to be dedicated is fittingly retained. Care should be taken, however, to ensure the authenticity of such relics. And then it goes down to 866. The tradition in the Roman liturgy of placing relics of martyrs or the saints beneath the altar should be preserved, if possible. In other words, it is not absolutely necessary. It is a, it is a good thing to do. And this is true for the, the Greek church as well as the, the, the Roman church. The Greeks have something called a, a, uh, oh, what do they have? It's, it's, um, not a portable altar stone, but it is a, a, a cloth that in which there are relics of martyrs, uh, sewn. And this can be used the same as in place where there are not uh, relics of saints. I think the Eastern Church is, is more strict on this practice than we are. Uh, we used to be very strict on it, but as with many practices, we've kind of gotten a little less strict. But it's a beautiful custom, and it's part of the communion of saints that we're remembering that we're part of something much bigger. So let's see here. Uh, let's see here. I got a question here. Why is, and I think this is from, uh, this is from Lori, I believe. Um, why is Jesus unbloodied on the crucifix? You know, I, I mentioned that, uh, and, and this is not for younger or more sensitive viewers. Um, it's not hard to find on the web. Uh, I think AP did a story uh, filming it, uh, the news, AP news service. And if you look up, uh, Alvaro Blanco, Shroud of Turin, you'll find it. And as I say, I would not let children see it. I would not. Um, and if you are squeamish, I mean, Jesus is, it's, it's very realistic. This Alvaro, uh, Blanco spent, was it 12 years creating a, what they call a hyper realistic, uh, representation of the man in the shroud. And it, it is, it is, they beat him to a pulp before they crucified him. Um, so again, this is, this is a, it's a very powerful thing. It really looks like you're looking at, uh, the human body that was wrapped in the shroud. And I have no doubt that this was in fact Jesus. But in the early church, the cross was a symbol not unlike an electric chair. Could you imagine a religion that put a ele- model of an electric chair on its lawn and invited you in? I mean, this was repugnant. Now, the, the earliest possible representation we have of the... Uh, uh, of the cross may be actually in Pompeii, which was, oh, when was the eruption of Vesuvius? 70 AD? I forget when, but it was that early. Um, there may be, uh, the shadow of a cross on a wall. That's very tentative. But clearly, the, the next earliest representation of a cross is the, uh, the Alexamenos Graffito. There is, some people say it's from the first century, some people say it's from the second or third, who knows. But in the, in the page quarters of the palace, uh, there was a, a stick figure of a mule on a cross and a little stick figure with arms raised in prayer. And the captures Alexamenos worships his God. In other words, this sounds like this slave had told his uh, fellow slaves about the Jewish God he worshipped, this God who was crucified. The ancient Romans believed that, that the Jews had worshipped a great golden donkey in the uh, 
And that was, that was one of the stories, a great golden donkey in the Holy of Holies. Of course, the Holy of Holies was empty. They had no representation of God. Um, so this idea that the cross was repugnant um, was very, very strong in the early church. And you didn't see crosses until much later. And they weren't going to emphasize the, the horrific nature of crucifixion people until the Emperor Constantine, three centuries after Christ, understood the horrific nature of crucifixion uh, and and the the graphic representations of Jesus crucified didn't come into custom until the Middle Ages, and that was an echo of their understanding of or their realization that this was a horrific way to die. That's why we have the tradition of, of uh, an unbloodied Christ on the cross. Now, certain Certain places, it's really bloody. There's a strong Spanish tradition of, of very realistic images of Christ. Uh, but in Northern Europe, especially, we we seem to have clung to the earlier tradition. Let's not overdo it. Um, but if you want to see what Christ looked like in the tomb, I, I know no better representation. Again, I emphasize that if you are squeamish, don't go there. Uh, and of course, Christ is as he was buried without clothing. That is another thing that I think some people will find uh, offensive. So don't go there if you're going to be offended. But it is it is enough to make you weep. All right, moving along here. All right, well, let me look at the clock. I'm doing fine. All right. What is this one? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I notice there is no crucifix on the altar at my church. Is this mandatory? There must be a crucifix on or near the altar. Uh, so um, the uh, uh, and the caller also asks, or the the writer also asks, what is my formation donation? I have no idea. I was a pastor uh, for thirty years, and I'm almost fifty years a priest, and I have no idea what a formation donation is. So there you go. All right. Moving along. Plenty of lines open. All right. Let's see here. Oh, yeah. Plenty of lines open. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Okay. Okay. Let's see here. All right. Oh, and there's something about holy water. What's with holy water? Um, you know, that someone told me that the devil hates holy water. And I think that's kind of interesting. Why would the devil hate holy water? You know, the idea of a priestly blessing. Why is a priestly blessing important? I mean, fathers should bless their children. We bless one another constantly. And we say, God bless you when we sneeze. Um, so we do bless. There is a capacity that a non-ordained person has to bless. So what's special about a priestly blessing? The devil is an excellent historian. He's been there for all of it. And the apostolic succession and the ordination of priests with the laying on of hands is an unbroken chain from now until Christ. I was 
consecrated. I was ordained as a priest by Cardinal Cody. He was consecrated as a bishop by someone who was consecrated by a bishop by someone who was consecrated with a bishop by someone who was consecrated by a bishop all the way back to Saints Peter and Paul and Christ himself. So there is a chain of physical touch that goes back to Christ in the priestly blessing. That's why the priestly blessing is unique. The devil knows that and he doesn't like it. So holy water is a reminder of our baptism, that we're consecrated to Christ. But it's also a reminder that we are in unbroken succession, physical as well as spiritual. Some people say, well, we're all sort of in touch with Christ. Yeah, spiritually, not physically. And I am a body and a soul. And my physicality is important. And my physicality has been given over to Christ through ordination. So holy water is a visible sign to the devil of our connection to Christ and a visible reminder of our baptism. That's why holy water is a good thing. So you remember your baptism every time you go in church and bless yourself from the holy water fountain. I hope that helps. All right, we are going to go to a break. Uh, we'll come back with a word of the day. Oh, boy. And um, the, phone, the phone number again, 888-914-9149. We got lots of lines open. Oh, no, we don't. We got a lot of people. But give it a shot, 888-914-9149. Join Father Rocky this September for a pilgrimage to Poland and Prague. You'll visit the lands of St. John Paul the Great, St. Faustina, Our Lady of Częstochowa, and the Infant Child of Prague. Seats are limited. Information at relevantradio.com slash Poland. That's relevantradio.com slash Poland. Let us go to the word of the day. I said something that some people might not like. The word in the Our Father in Greek is ophelemata, uh, which means the things owed, as we let go to the things owed us. And in Latin, it's... I'm trying to think of the Our Father in Latin. Dimite debita nostra, nos diminimus debitoribus nostris. The Greek and the Latin is clearly debtors. Well, why in English do we say trespass? And I've heard lots of wonderful explanations about it, but I think that the most important... the most important, the most, probably the most accurate is that trespass has changed its meaning over, uh, uh, over the, uh, um, these centuries. The word trespass in English. Um, the, there are three kinds of trespasses historically. Uh, well, actually six. There's threats, assault, battery, wounding, mayhem, uh, and false imprisonment, but there is also a trespass to chattels. Trespass to chattels. 
that means it's this comes from the law uh, that that um, we have interfered with another person's lawful possessions of a chattel. So a trespass it could mean, in a sense, a thing owed. If I took something that was owed, so. What does the scripture say about owing? Owe no man anything but to love one another. So this idea, you know, that I'm sure some devout people are saying, you mean the Protestants are right when they say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? Yes and no. Um, forgive us the things owed that, that we have. What is the definition of justice? Justice is right relationship to God and to our fellow. So, when we take that which is owed to another, we enter into injustice. And what do we owe? Oh, no one anything but to love one another. So this idea of trespassing, it isn't just breaking the rules. It is, it is, uh, uh, it is breaking the rules in reference to our, to what God is owed and what other human beings are owed. So it's a little more complicated than that. So don't go changing the words to debts. Say what we're saying in church. Forgive us uh, our infractions against what belongs to you, O Lord, as we forgive those you know who commit infractions against what we are. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I think it is kind of interesting that that uh, that trespass is not simply. You look at the Ten Commandments. The first three are what we owe God, and then the next seven are what we owe our fellow human being. So, so trespass in that sense, we've trespassed against the proper relationship to God and to one another. So I don't know. I was just thinking about that. Let's go to phone calls. Hello. You talk. I'll listen. Julian, what can I do for you? Hey, Father. Uh, I'm Julius uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, um, okay. Oh, Julius, ago, not Julian. Julius, go on. Yes. Yeah. Well, a couple of years ago, I was uh, an atheist, and uh, yes, I yes, read Lord of the Rings, and got interested in Christianity just to see how it influenced Tolkien, and one thing led to another, and I was. <laughs> it's a slippery slope. Yeah, <laughs> Atheism yeah. is a really hard position to defend when you think about it. But go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh, tough. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I eventually, you know, I had said, well, there's so many Christianities. What's the right Christianity? I did some research. I ended up getting very interested in Catholicism and Orthodoxy, and I chose Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, we have a lot of shared history, and I still have a oh, very sure. keen interest in understanding the Catholic Church and understanding its mindset and, you know, why yes. there is this yes. split. Yeah. And uh, I think often about the Lord's Prayer, that we may all be one. And then my wife's family is mostly Roman Catholic, and none of them mm -hmm. have ever even heard of the Filioque. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They just don't even know anything about it. Like, what is the big deal, you know? And so I ask myself, what can the lay person, the lay Christian do, especially Catholic and Orthodox, to follow the Lord's will that we can all be one? Well... Well, you can, you know, uh, the the division between um, between uh, the Roman Church and 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 uh, uh, the the uh, the the Constantinopolitan churches, uh, to be more precise, I suppose, uh, the real difference is a political one, and and I think that one can 
as an you know, it's a problem of the clergy much more than the faithful. Um, I think what one can do for me, when, when someone says, um, if an Orthodox person says, well, we're the true church, I say, of course you are. We think so are we. You're truly a church and you rest on the foundation of, of, of the apostles. And, and I think a lay person can look for all of those, uh, things that unite us and to always treat a person from the other group respectfully. Um, and I think eventually the clergy will follow our lead. Um, the, 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 you mentioned the filioque clause. It's very interesting. The Byzantine churches, those Eastern churches that are in union with, uh, with Rome, they don't use the filioque clause in the creed. I wonder if you knew that it was especially, it seems to have, yeah, it seems to have come from Spain because the Spaniards were all Arians. The Spanish nobility were Arians who accepted Catholicism grudgingly so that they could run Spain. This has happened about 600 A.D., 500 A.D. Uh, and so it became common in the West where there was a tendency to deny the divinity of Christ because of Arianism, whereas in the East it wasn't necessary. That's where the filioque clause comes in, and it was kind of a therapeutic thing for the West. But the Eastern churches that are in union with Rome don't don't repeat the, the uh, they don't say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Most Eastern theologians would say, of course, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. It's just not put in the creed because it didn't have to be. Uh, and, and of course, adding something to the creed is is verboten uh, uh, as far as the East is concerned. Does that help a little? Really? You know, the the coming to understand one another and seeing how very much we have in common. You know that 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 we have a different interpretation or way of saying a few things, and it. I think we have to realize it isn't pleasing to the Father. Uh, um, that we always try to do as Jesus did was pleasing to the Father. So you find, you you find ways to affirm what unity there is, and there is a great deal of unity left. So I don't know if that helps at all. No, it was. Um, I, I, especially what you said about, like, oh, they tell me you're part of the one true church. I say you are. And I'm like, well, that's good. I like to think that we are sister churches. Yeah. If, we, if we're not technically in communion, I'm not sure all the rules, you know. But. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, that we really are. I mean, we believe that Eastern sacraments are valid. Uh, we believe that, yeah. that they rest on apostolic tradition. Uh, and, and, you know, that it's just that we we look at unity as uh in in a different way but you know that that on a very fundamental level we are united so that's at least that's my opinion i do think uh, love might save us at the end of the day so. yep 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 so just you, so keep on keeping on well god bless you julian and uh, julius and the uh, uh, atheism is you know you got to feel sorry for atheists they really have to do what? All sorts of Why gymnastics to think, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know. Oh, this is all just a coincidence. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I always say, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of the faith, God exists by definition. God is that greater than which nothing exists. The question is, what is the nature of God? And we Christians, we say, you want to know what the creator of the universe looks like? Look at a Jewish carpenter who died under arrest and was born in a barn. It's quite a religion we've got, isn't it, Julius? But it's true. It is. I, it's very look... hard to ignore J.R. Tolkien's arguments about beauty and, oh, and yeah. God. 
So. Oh yeah, oh yeah, the, the 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 argument from beauty. Well, I should let you go. I could talk all day, but God bless and and hang in there and and get along with your wife's relatives. That's always good advice. All right, let's go to Paul. Paul, how can I help you, Paul from Youngstown, Ohio? Hi, Father. It's a coincidence, but I'm Orthodox also, and I oh, heard my you goodness. earlier. I heard you talking about the anti uh, the anti mention yes. cloth, which they yeah, put yeah, on yeah. the altar has a relic yes. stone in it, and it allows yeah, yeah, any yeah. table. Uh, if a priest yes. is, say he's persecuted, has to hide in the forest from the communists or something, he can lay that antimension over the tree stump, and that can become his altar. And, well, thank uh, you for the yeah, the word. I couldn't remember the word. We call it Greek corporal, so it sounds like someone in the Greek uh, army. But go on. Go on, Paul. <laughs> well, that I just wanted to mention that. Well, thank and, you uh, for that antimension, yeah. I, yeah, I think the, I actually was uh, the, given one. Oh, you were given one. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I had but heard continue. that. I interrupted you. Oh, that's okay. I just uh, uh, I wondered also on the filioque that the other caller had mentioned. Uh, as an Orthodox way, I believe is that the Holy Spirit, in a sense, proceeds from Christ because He eternally dwells in Christ. Uh, yeah. After. He, he, pers- he eternally proceeds from the Father, rests in the Son, and then is yeah. sent into the world by the Son in a mediating sort of way, Christ being yeah. the one mediator between God and humanity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we think of the Holy Spirit as, a, as, as, as the, very, the very relationship of the Father and Son, which is so perfect that that relationship is a, is a person. And, and so the love that proceeds from the Son to the Father and the love that proceeds from the Father to the Son would betoken that proceeding of the Holy Spirit within the life of the Trinity itself. And then, as you say, it's uh, a lot of Greeks will describe it as uh, from the Father through the Son. So, uh, but, but the Holy Spirit is, I would say, the first person of the Trinity that you meet. Uh, or you wouldn't be inspired to say Jesus is Lord. So, well, thank you for calling in, Paul, and thanks for an antimension, not Greek corporal. It's much better. Let's go to Barbara from Southern California. Barbara, what can I do for you? Hello, Father Simon. I have a Lenten observance question for you. Yes. So I have a fantastic parish. Um, people are on fire. We're There's a lot of involvement. I'm involved in a lot of things. And... In the last few years, we've gotten involved with the uh, fish fry on Friday mm-hmm. of Lent. And yes, I was asked to be the person that wheels the beer cart around. Ah, the me. beer cart lady. Very important job. Go on. Yes, I know that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of friendly, and I think they asked me to do that for those reasons. And um, all well and good, but it's Friday of Lent. <laughs> and Barbara, I don't know, Barbara. We used to do a, let, we used to do a soup let me supper, tell a very you, humble soup supper. Let me tell you a true story. The monks of Germany, Germans don't consider beer alcohol. It's They'll call it liquid bread. And the monks of Germany wondered if beer broke the Lenten fast. So they sent some barrels down. This is a true story in the Middle Ages, or the early Middle Ages, to the cardinals of, of, of Rome uh, to ask the question, does this break the Lenten fast? Because, of course, the cardinals were wine drinkers. And the cardinals tasted it and said, this stuff is so awful, it couldn't possibly break the Lenten fast. It's penance to drink it. <laughs> this is a true story. But, uh, no, you know, Barbara, the, the, the drinking of alcohol is not forbidden um, in Lent. Um, 
drunkenness is always forbidden. I wouldn't hesitate. There, you know, the 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 fish fry is a fundraiser, and and uh, well, you're raising funds. I I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, and if people, you know, I wouldn't nag people to to get beer because they may have given it up for Lent. But it isn't in itself. Sure. Uh, a, a wrong thing, but the the story about the Lent, the the, the German monks is true. I hope that helps a little, I will Barbara. I relay that, and I thank you very All much right. for that because I was struggling a little bit. Yes, as it's a true story, <laughs> I believe. Let's go to Jenny, Jenny from Port Washington, Wisconsin, a really nice little town. What can I do for you, Jenny? Hi, Father. Um, I was just wondering. Um, my brother, um, he's a little bit older than me. Um, I guess age doesn't matter, but. Um, he's been thinking about joining the Freemasons and has been mm-hmm. going to some meetings. And I'm honestly not sure what the organization is, but some no. of my friends have told me um, that it can be like that some in the higher ranks they can glorify Satan. And I have this book of deliverance prayers, and yeah. there's like a five-page Latin Prayer of like yeah, all I, oh, I've only got 30 seconds, Jenny, but I can tell you that a Catholic at this point is not welcome to join, is not allowed to join the Freemasons because they are a secret society and we don't even know what they believe in the upper echelons. Um, it's, it's, uh, I would, if your brother would ask me, I would say, don't, you know, there are other, other organizations that you can join. Um, and within the church. And speaking of organizations, join. it's not an organization, but join them for the next hour or two. They'll pray with you. <laughs>